I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Hello and welcome. This is a very special 10 American presidents. Generally, I am off mic, but you might be one of the select few who are actually watching me on Zoom. As a Brit, I am always endlessly fascinated with American culture, and American history, American political culture, hence the podcast. Very obviously, America has just seen the inauguration of a new head of the executive and also the head of state, uh, Joseph uh, R. Biden, which got me thinking inauguration speeches. Inauguration speeches are something which I haven't actually addressed on 10 American presidents. And uh, because this is going to be something which we haven't done before on the show, I thought, let's do this in a different way. Let's do this live on Zoom. So I reached out to my good friend, Clint Losey, who's an ex-Capitol Hill staffer, and he's now a speechwriter. Clint, just before we start, why don't you tell us about your time uh, working on Capitol Hill? Uh, I worked uh, for my home state senator from Wyoming on um, on a variety of issues for about 10 years. Uh, I left the Hill because uh, politics was getting a little bit sticky. I think everyone 
uh, can relate to that over the past few years. And now I'm a speechwriter for the head of one of the federal agencies in the DC area. Fantastic. So what we are going to do, uh, what, what Clint has done is put together, uh, you know, a list of some of the best inaugural speeches. And uh, we are going to, we're going to listen to some of the snippets of them, and then we're going to kind of dig into the weeds. Friends and fellow citizens, called upon to undertake the duties of the first executive office of our country, I avail myself we the face the arduous days of life for us in the warm courage of national unity. My uh, distinguished guests, my fellow Americans, this is America's day. This is democracy's day, a day of history and hope, of renewal and resolve. Like, like most American presidential traditions, this kind of really starts with Washington, doesn't it, Clint? Um, you didn't put down Washington's first inaugural as one of the speeches that uh, you saw as one of the greatest hits. Why not? Uh, Washington's first speech, it's not mandated by the Constitution, first of all. He actually, when he's, uh, when he's decided to, to address Congress, which is who he's talking to after he's been sworn as president, um, he refers actually to the uh, to the State of the Union clause in terms of whether or not he should give Congress information and recommendation for uh, for legislative action. So he was, um, you know, he decided to put that off, and so he just he just spoke a little bit to to kind of mark the moment. And so I think that unlike a lot of the greatest hits that we're going to go through and, and even some of the, the less great hits that you might decide to talk about, um, he doesn't really talk about a lot of the traditional stuff that you see in, a, uh, in an inaugural speech. And in fact, the first thing he does is uh, talk about how he had been happily retired before the American people dragged him out of retirement, but he guesses he will come do his duty and then he ends not on some uh, not some great great uh, oration about American unity and great uh, and exceptionalism. He basically ends saying, "I'm pretty rich. Please don't pay me a salary. Uh, you can cover my expenses." So it, it was a very kind of make work speech to, to kick the tradition off. One thing that I was really struck by um, learning about Washington, and and this isn't me just being a Brit. But that actually, he kind of lost more battles than, than he won. And he wasn't actually a great orator, was he? But he's symbolically, apart from the fact that he's the first president, his strength is in his stoicism. It's a case of in adversity, isn't it? Just keep going on. You know, let's, uh, with this ragtag bunch of, uh, of patriots. But, you know, he wasn't a great speaker. He wasn't necessarily a philosopher thinker either was he and as i seem to remember um when he kind of gave that first inaugural he kind of people could barely hear him as well people could barely hear any of the inaugurals up until the early 1900s when you had those um kinds of uh when you had um speakers and whatnot to amplify uh what they were saying um but yeah he wasn't he wasn't necessarily what you would think of as kind of one of the early american orders he obviously um, was one of the great leaders uh, of the nation early on. And I think his story is fascinating in, in terms of his leadership and how he kind of is such a linchpin in, in the founding of the nation. Um, but, you know, speech writing goes back to the very beginning. I don't, I don't know specifically if his inaugural speech was written by, uh, by anyone else, but Alexander Hamilton 
did did some speech writing for the president. Um, there, there's actually a scene of that in uh, Hamilton the musical, which may not be the last Hamilton reference I make tonight. So just just be warned of that. His departing speech to Congress uh, is is a great deal more famous um, than any of his than either of his inaugural speeches, and it's one that is still read uh, by tradition in the U.S. Senate every year. Hmm. All right, so let's go on to our first one, and it's Thomas Jefferson's uh, first inaugural. Just very quickly, set us a scene. Um, it's uh, the election of eighteen hundred, and there is rancor and um, in the American body politic. Right. Well, I mean, I guess we can just get right back to the Hamilton references. Um, if you if you don't want to if you don't want to play the 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 audio of the speech, we can just do we can just do a Hamilton listen party. Um, well, we're going to play the audio <laughs> of the speech, but uh... all right, all right. Uh, I, yeah, the the election of eighteen hundred was was very rancorous. You know, anyone who kind of peeks into U.S. history around this time, they were. Uh, you know, we think that we have a, a pretty divided and and, and pretty um, rancorous political environment now, it was very similar, if not worse, in the late 1700s, early 1800s. And one of the things that's really interesting about the Jefferson speech, or the Jefferson presidency in general, is that it was the first time that uh, power had actually been transferred to an opposing party. Washington was the first president. He was pretty universally beloved. John Adams was in his party. They were they were co-aligned politically. And Jefferson was not. Jefferson was uh, Jefferson became opposition over the course of the early republic. So this is the first time that we actually had to um, decide, are we going to give power to our political opponents? And Jefferson does talk to that directly in his speech. During the contest of opinion through which we have passed, the animation of discussions and of exertions has sometimes worn an aspect which might impose on strangers unused to think freely and to speak and to write what they think. But this being now decided by the voice of the nation, announced according to the rules of the Constitution, all will, of course, arrange themselves under the will of the law and unite in common efforts for the common good. All, too, will bear in mind the sacred principle that though the will of the majority is in all cases to prevail, that will to be rightful must be reasonable, that the minority possess their equal rights, which equal law must protect, and to violate would be oppression. Let us then, fellow citizens, unite with one heart and one mind. Let us restore to social intercourse that harmony and affection without which liberty and even life itself are but dreary things. How different structurally, intellectually, would that speech be from, let's say, a speech that Biden would have given? Uh, Give us a sense of that, if you could, please, Clint. Uh, I mean, I think you see some of the same things in Biden's speech that you see in um, that the Jefferson just said right there. Um, uh, you have a, a call to uh, a call to accept the results of the election. The uh, these things now being divided by the voice of the nation. Um, so he's basically saying this is done, and it, it had been a, an extended process. It had not run um, the way it normally had. Then you have the the the, the call to civility and call to unity. So I think I don't think that um, you know it's phrased very differently. It's phrased like um, a very old-fashioned speech compared to to how we speak today. But I don't think that these sentiments are that far away from things that we're saying here today. 
how much is a part of the the ethos of the time what's going on at the time and and how much does that then forge a great speech a good speech because it, it's not by accident that the speeches that you've picked so we've got uh, Jefferson's first inaugural, Lincoln's first and second. We've got FDR. Um, yes, we have JFK and we have Reagan. Uh, but the country was in a point of crisis, wasn't it, at the time yeah. of those inaugurals? So how important is that in terms of, you know, making a speech? Of other William Harrison, did he give a great speech? And apart from the fact that it was the longest, but actually there was nothing really going on in America at the time. So we just go, ah, type of thing. I don't think it's a coincidence that the, the greatest hits, as you might call them, come out of crisis, just because there's so much more to be said. Um, you know, you talk about Harrison's speech. It went on for 8,000 words. Uh, you know, he talked about uh, classical history. You know, 30 days later, he died from it. If you look at other speeches, um, Buchanan, uh, the president who preceded Lincoln, is another one that this looked on as, as not very good. Buchanan's regarded as a not as a as a pretty poor president as far as that goes, but you know there there were these crises and uh, these great leaders who rose up to meet them, and so I think that that kind of goes hand in hand with a pretty great speech. Fair enough. Okay, let's go on with our uh, history lesson. But every difference of opinion is not a difference of principle. We have called by different names, brethren of the same principle. We are all Republicans. We are all Federalists. If there be any among us who would wish to dissolve this union or to change its Republican form, let them stand undisturbed as monuments of the safety with which error of opinion may be tolerated, where reason is left free to combat it. It was important, wasn't it, that Jefferson used his speech as a very obvious rallying call to uh, reunite the country. One of the themes which I always hear at this point, well, everybody hears at this point in the American political cycle is the peaceful transfer of power. Now, we don't want to relitigate what happened on January the 6th at the Capitol. From a British perspective, I always scratch my head and go, well, we were doing peaceful transfers of power from before this election. But it was important, wasn't it? that he had such a divisive election, but still Adams gave up power and Jefferson was gracious in accepting it. Yeah, I mean, depending how, how gracious you, you, uh, you might think he had been when you dig down into some of the things he was writing at the time. But I mean, this speaks to the, the, the passage you play speaks, I think, a lot to just the very rancorous political environment. Uh, I'll, I'll try and make this my last Hamilton quote. In the musical, they say, we smack each other in the press and we don't print retractions. You know, we think about alternate news and alternate facts today, but, you know, they had printing presses then too, and they were using them quite viciously. You know, Jefferson here is saying um, every difference of opinion is not a difference of principle. And again, you could hear that today. I think Biden said similar sentiments to try and get people to, uh, to talk about how we can disagree peacefully. The, one of the things I like best about that clip you just played is uh, let any who would uh, dissolve this union stand as undisturbed monuments. Like, you know, let people stand as monuments to bad opinions. They'll, they'll be gone long after the Republic is, is still standing. So I think that that's a great, a great sentiment and one that we're still kind of trying to live up to. 
as we mm. keep going forward. It, it's also important uh, looking back at history. History is there to remind us, isn't it? And, and things never exactly repeat themselves. But the you know the the meta the the line is that history does does rhyme though, doesn't it? And here we are uh, with thinking that America is more divided than it than it's ever been. And uh, you look back, and there was this election, and potentially things were up in the balance. You know, the Republic was still young, but it managed to prevail. So um, let's move on to a time when it wasn't just a, a cold war per se, it was definitely a hot war. I am loath to close. We are not enemies, but friends. We must not be enemies. Though passion may have strained, it must not break our bonds of affection. The mystic cords of memory, stretching from every battlefield and patriot grave to every living heart and hearthstone all over this broad land, will yet swell the chorus of the Union when again touched, as surely they will be by the better angels of our nature. Tell us, sir. Obviously, this is a, a, a very important inaugural address. Clint, give us a little bit of background and tell us the reason why you think it's so pivotal in the American story. Yeah, that's uh, Abraham Lincoln on March 4th, 1861. That was given just about a month after seven southern states seceded and formed the Confederacy. But it was before the actual shooting war started. Um, that would actually That would actually start about a month later. So he's in this very precarious time, um, and that's the closing paragraph of um, what is actually one of the longer speeches, one of the longer inaugural speeches that we have. I forget exactly how long it is, but I think it's somewhere in the top 10 longest speeches. And he spends so much of that time trying to convince uh, the southern states to uh, to return to the fold. Um, and, you know, he's, he, he talks about the benefits of unity, but also uh, kind of a little bit of a carrot and stick uh, approach to to what might happen if they don't come back. I like that passage a lot because uh, it actually wasn't written by Abraham Lincoln. It was written by his uh, incoming Secretary of State Seward. It was added to the end because Seward thought that he needed to to kind of close on a softer note rather than just you know kind of laying out his arguments to the states. Um, and if you don't mind, I'm gonna. I, I'd like to just uh, go through the original uh, text that Stuart wrote because it was Lincoln who took that uh, and polished it into the kind of the great speech, uh, the the great uh, the great paragraph that we just heard there. Seward wrote, "I close. We are not, must not be aliens or enemies, but fellow countrymen and brethren. Although passion has strained our bonds of affection too hardly, they must not. I am sure they will not be broken." The mystic's chords, which proceeding from so many battlefields and so many patriot graves, pass through all the hearts and hearths of this broad continent of ours, will yet again harmonize in their ancient music when breathed upon by the guardian angel of the nation. And there's like there's a lot of great sentiment there. So looking at that as a speechwriter, um, it's it's really great to see the leap that Lincoln made when he edited that to to be something that's just so much more memorable. Um, you know, we are not enemies, but friends sounds so much better than we must not be aliens or enemies, uh, particularly to our modern ears where aliens are, you know. 
Absolutely. Let's move on because he's the um, only president that you say so good that we um, we really should have um, a second hit uh, from Abraham Lincoln. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. With malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right, as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle, and for his widow and his orphan to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and a lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. So do you want to tell us exactly when this inaugural w was, was given? The guy actually reading it out sounds exasperated and sounds tired. He sounds like he's just gone four years through a civil war. But anyway, um, I, I've, I've kind of uh, asked you a question and answered it myself. But anyway, why don't you... Yeah, uh, no, no, that's that's exactly that's exactly where it is. His first inaugural was given in that weird period right be between when there was the succession, the attack on Fort Sumter kicked off hostilities. And this one is given in a similar uh, lull period so it, the Civil War was coming to an end, actually. Robert E. Lee would be surrendering about a month after the speech was given, uh, just a few weeks before the 13th Amendment had been passed to outlaw slavery. 
And, and so it again was this kind of transition point coming out, much as the first one had been a transition point going in. This is one of the shortest inaugural speeches on on the list. Uh, and it's just, um, I think it's about 700 words. And he just sounds so tired. The, the presidency ages you, and I cannot imagine how aged he must have been. I'm sure that the, the side-by-side pictures of just how much the Civil War aged Abraham Lincoln really comes through in the text. He spends a, a good bit of time even, you know, wondering if uh, the Civil War was the price of the sin of slavery. And if anyone thinks that, you know, the Civil War was about anything other than slavery, Lincoln is very clear that it was about slavery. Mm. And then we get to the, that final paragraph where, where he kind of tries to give a slightly stoic outlook um, that, uh, that better things are coming. Better things are coming is a, a kind of a key motif for uh, the next uh, presidential speech, which we move on to the era where we can actually not only see but also hear uh, presidents. So this next one is FDR, and it's the the depths of the depression. Which the present situation of our people impels. This is preeminently the time to speak the truth, the whole truth, frankly and boldly. Nor need we shrink from honestly facing conditions in our country today, this great nation will endure as it has endured, will revive and will prosper. So first of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance. Mm. Uh, that, uh, for me, is just a great rhetorical kind of flourish. We have nothing to fear but but fear itself. Again, give us the, the setup uh, for FDR to deliver this wonderful speech. Uh, yeah, we were coming out of the Great Depression, um, which had been brutal in 1932, uh, and Hoover had basically was was seen to have been uh, to have uh, botched um, the, the Great Depression as president uh, in the in the preceding four years. Um, so he looked terrible for that, but then he also looked really bad because these World War One veterans had had marched on Washington to demand bonus payments that they were owed. Um, and he had uh, he had the U.S. Army led by I think George Patton go out and, and basically to run them out. So Hoover looked terrible, and FDR was inheriting basically this tremendous mess of the, of the Great Depression. He's just trying to instill confidence here in the American people, and that's why it's such a great phrase. And I think that's why it's lived on so uh, so effectively. But you know, he he just keeps it up, uh, trying to to uh, you know, make a case that, that there's a way out of this through unity and hard work. Unity and hard work. These seem to be re- recurrent themes in these speeches. It's almost as if you Americans need to be reminded that you are actually uh, a united people in these United States. That's a that's a leading comment there, isn't it? <laughs> um, I mean, it, it's it's been true for a very long time that. Um, 
one of the functions of the inaugural speech is to bring the nation together and, and to lay out your own guiding principles and to affirm the strength of the system. Um, and that, that's not just true in crisis times. It's true when, uh, when there's a change of power from one party to another that is going to bring in new principles. You saw that with Jefferson, I think, laying out his protection for the voice of the, the minority and opposition party. And so I think it is an important part of, of the inaugural to, to lay those things out and reaffirm them every time that power can change, but that's okay. Mm. I think I'm going to be right in saying this, but we, we talked obviously before uh, hit the button to go live with this. And uh, the position of the British prime minister isn't the same as the, uh, the American president. The American president is the head of state and the head of the executive. The British prime minister is just the head of the executive. And obviously the queen in the United Kingdom is the, the head of state. So you combine the two roles. But when a new prime minister walks into Downing Street, number one, there is no waiting three months or two months. Yeah, two months and a bit, whatever. It's the next day. The election gets called at, let's say, 12 midnight. At 10 o'clock the next day, they walk in to Downing Street. That's it. And though they might say a few words to the press, it's not a formal thing at all. Famously, or depending on where you sit politically, infamously, Margaret Thatcher gave a, a speech from Francis of Assisi uh, when she went into Downing Street. And maybe she started a, a mini tradition uh, that way. How important thematically do you think these speeches are to set the tenor, not for where America is at the moment, but for the administration kind of going forward. You know, do we really see, not necessarily policy, but, you know, the general thrust and ethos of what that president is going to try to achieve in the next four years during these inauguration speeches? I think that the inaugural is really important for putting the new president in a presidential position from, from the very beginning. I, I think it's less important for policy, save the policy for the State of the Union, you know, save the policy for other, other avenues. But I do think it's really important that everyone sees the new president being the president, doing something very presidential. Um, uh, that, that's something that uh, all of his supporters have been waiting for. So, you know, it, it, it's good for them. It's good for the opposition to see, you know, more than any, more than any year this year is, is the year that, um, you know, putting the, whoever was standing there was, was a real strong message uh, about the outcome of the election. And then it's the first opportunity to say, you know, in many cases, it, we've just been through a grueling election. That's pretty much par for the course. And then you do get an opportunity to get up there and, and make your case for everybody. Um, and to bring the nation together and to say that you're going to be the president for all the people, um, whether you mean that or not. That, that was telling what you said at the end there. Um, let, let's move on. It, being a Brit, and, and before I was became fascinated with uh, American politics, if I knew anything about inaugurals, I, I knew nothing to fear but fear itself. And the next one. Uh, which was ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. I think just about um, every Brit uh, will at least be uh, aware of this next speech. 
in the long history of the world, only a few generations have been granted the role of defending freedom in its hour of maximum danger. I do not shrink from this responsibility. I welcome it. I do not believe that any of us would exchange places with any other people or any other generation. The energy, the faith, the devotion which we bring to this endeavor will light our country and all who serve it. And the glow from that fire can truly light the world. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. For everyone who's viewing this on Zoom, there's two blokes there with top hats on in the background, which I've only just realised. And this is 1960. You know, just those those two gentlemen there with their top hats on. It's almost Lincoln-esque, which is quite bizarre. I've only just noticed that. Why did you choose this speech, Clint? I, I'll admit I chose that speech because uh, ask not what you can, your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country is one of the great American taglines. If there were going to be America the movie, uh, that would be a contender for what would be on the poster. The Kennedy inauguration is a little bit different than the others. It's still a crisis inauguration, um, but it's not an, it's not a domestic crisis. Uh, it, it's an international crisis. Um, but one of the main things he's trying to do is rally the people who've been a little bit demoralized by the early years of the Cold War. You know, Sputnik was was launched a, a few years earlier, and so uh, it was a period when Americans were feeling a little bit behind in the space race, a little bit more worried about the USSR uh, than I think that we realized later on that that we should have been. But you know, it was really about recommitting to American principles that. Uh, you know, kind of as an article of faith, were were going to be the main the main way to win the Cold War was a, was through a recommitment to those ideas and principles. Hmm. And I don't know how much this is, you know, kind kind of with hindsight, but we're always told as well that it was a a young president and it's a new decade, isn't it? And um, it's a real kind of generational changing of the guard as well with, with that speech as well. Yeah, uh, the the Nixon um, uh, Kennedy uh, campaigns had been been really close, so uh, it, it was a very tight election uh, as far as that goes. Um, and it was basically coming off of Dwight Eisenhower, the Republican, but you know, very nominally Republican president. Um, he he wasn't a, a political animal at all, uh, and so it was kind of a, a change of uh, a changing of the guard in that way rather than a handing off to a successor. Mm. We should really go to another kind of kind of changing changing of the guard and um, which is uh, exactly 20 years later and um, it's Ronald Reagan and uh, here is a, a, a political revolution. The economic ills we suffer have come upon us over several decades. They will not go away in days, weeks, or months, but they will go away. They will go away because we, as Americans, 
have the capacity now as we've had in the past to do whatever needs to be done to preserve this last and greatest bastion of freedom. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. For me, and you're the speechwriter, um, tonally, this feels very, this feels different from Kennedy. Kennedy felt like um, aspirational rhetoric, whereas Reagan seems to be bringing this down, really, and speaking not bluntly, but much more earthly so. Yeah, I think the thing that's interesting about this speech is how different it is in terms of tone. Um, it's it's uh, there there are sections of it that are aspirational, and and there are sections of it where where he kind of returns to to the some of the standards of uh, inaugural speeches. Um, but there's this like this undertone of cynicism that creeps in, and and I think you see it right there in uh, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. I think you ra so rarely see the blame game in inaugural speeches because most presidents are working so hard to to foster unity and to kind of make the case that that everybody should should rally behind them. So I think that that's just a really interesting different thing that Reagan does. And there are a couple other interesting places he he kind of goes down that slightly cynical road. Um, uh, just a couple paragraphs later, he talks about special interest groups, which in the 80s was was kind of, you know, that was proto lobbying, I guess. And, and so it was just not, it, you know, it was a fairly negative connotation in, term, in, in political uh, terms. Well, if no one among us is capable of governing himself, then who among us has the capacity to govern someone else? All of us together, in and out of government, must bear the burden. The solutions we seek must be equitable with no one group singled out to pay a higher price. We hear much of special interest groups. Well, our concern must be for a special interest group that has been too long neglected. It knows no sectional boundaries or ethnic and racial divisions, and it crosses political party lines. It is made up of men and women who raise our food, patrol our streets, man our mines and factories, teach our children, keep our homes, and heal us when we're sick. Professionals, industrialists, shopkeepers, clerks, cabbies, and truck drivers. They are, in short, we the people. This breed called Americans. Part of the power of that speech, not only the words, but because he was a great actor, you know, it was it's a case of, you know, he was hitting all of those marks and all those punches. First of all, I think that the, uh, the whole framing of, of um, we hear much of special interest groups and then to pivot to the American people as a special interest group is, I think that's too cute by half. As a, as that's my professional opinion as a speechwriter. But, but it is one of those interesting things where, where, uh, you know, you talk about so many speeches are about unity and, and they really don't, um, call out specific groups so much as they try and bring people together. And, and this just strikes me, um, you know, I was not um, politically conscious in the 80s, but this strikes me very much as, you know, trying to talk to the conservative base or the working class base in a way that you don't, uh, you don't see in a lot of speeches. So I wonder if that is just a little bit cynical on his part. Mm. And, and, and also, 
and I don't want to be uh, upset anybody by this, but it, for me, I think it's a little bit clever than than what you are saying. Bearing in mind this was 1980, right? So we've got uh, what 40 odd years hence of of history to view it, but to go from the pivot of interest groups, which would have been this was a time of affirmative action within the federal government, etc. So he is actually saying those minorities, black folks, well, they've had their time, but it's you, the Americans. And actually what he's saying, it is a dog whistle, he's white America, isn't it? You can easily say, oh, no, 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 because he's talking about all these different professions. But actually, because the way that it's framed, you know, he's saying that, okay, They've had their moment and you felt frustrated that you've been ignored. But actually, now it's your time. Yeah, I think that there's just a lot of pushback against against things like that. And, and basically just conflating government with anything they don't like about government, which I, I think is part of the conservative movement that, that uh, Reagan kicked off. You know, the, the effort to reduce it down to smaller and smaller portion, uh, smaller and power uh, um, that's, you know, still part of the platform today in, in terms of in terms of like judging it from 40 years on I, I do try and be a little bit cautious about that because things were things were different in the 80s and maybe I just don't understand how much more burdensome government was there but I get the impression that it was just a, it was just a lot more cynical and it was a lot more an attack um, more that would would have been appropriate on the campaign trail or even in a state of the union, but like it, it did seem a little bit, like you said, divisive uh, and, and a little bit dog whistly. But it, it is clever that, to then frame it as we the people. You said that that was um, a, a clever flourish. You connected this with the notes that you sent to me with a speech which I don't think I'm going to be out on a limb here by saying that I don't necessarily think is going to go down in the annals as a good speech, but it's definitely one with the lens of history, which is viewed incredibly ironically, talking about uh, this American carnage. What truly matters is not which party controls our government, but whether our government is controlled by the people. January 20th, 2017, will be remembered as the day the people became the rulers of this nation again. The forgotten men and women of our country will be forgotten no longer. Everyone is listening to you now. You came by the tens of millions to become part of a historic movement the likes of which the world has never seen before. But this is the lead up to it, isn't it? So we're about to get to the American carnage. But for too many of our citizens, a different reality exists. Mothers and children trapped in poverty in our inner cities, rusted out factories scattered like tombstones across the landscape of our nation. An education system flush with cash, but which leaves our young and beautiful students deprived of all knowledge. And the crime and the gangs and the drugs that have stolen too many lives and robbed our country 
of so much unrealized potential. This American carnage stops right here and stops right now. Is it right to say, would it be fair to say that that, that was the darkest of American inaugural speeches? I, that's hard to say because you did. we did just listen to Lincoln on the verge of the Civil War, but it's a contender. The, the thing about it is that it is, again, just kind of so cynical. Um, it, it, we talk about how much presidents want to speak to the whole nation and want to bring people behind them. Um, and, you know, maybe Reagan was playing with that a little bit, trying to speak to his base a little bit um, with that very clever special interest groups uh, uh, phrasing he did. But, you know, it seems very clear who Donald Trump is speaking to um, at this time. Um, and, and Trump did study Reagan's speech specifically uh, when he was writing his own inaugural address. So, so you have the great communicator being studied by the great miscommunicator in terms of writing this up. The, those hints of cynicism that you see in Reagan just come out full blast in Trump's speech. And, and that's just kind of what make that's what I think is gonna, gonna make it part of his legacy that it's not gonna be considered a great speech on its own, but it's gonna be, I think American carnage is gonna be the phrase that comes up and again and again and again, whenever we're talking about uh, Donald Trump in a historical context uh, and, and you know he coined it for himself. Mm. Folks, um, we are rapidly approaching the hour mark if you're on the east coast um, it's getting late i know we have robin in melbourne australia so it's bright and early for you robin so you've got the whole day uh, uh, ahead of you has anybody got anything specifically that they would like to add it can be a question to clint it can be an observation um you can either use the little uh, wave the hand uh, icon on Zoom or quite literally ju just just wave your hands. Alexander Martone, so you're over there in Brooklyn. You've unmuted yourself, you're a veteran. You know how this thing works. Uh, why yeah. don't you ask the question, Alexander? Thank you. So one of the things we've been talking about is the theme of unity that tends to run through all these speeches, most of these speeches. But most of these administrations, I wouldn't call exactly mild-mannered. Many of them, as you indicated, signaled drastic ideological shifts or, or changes in how you know government functioned you know thinking about fdr for example um do you think that means that the the professions of unity were purely performative or am i is there something else there that i'm that i'm that i'm perhaps overshadowing right that the there there was some kind of you know other unity achieved that's not indicated by, you know, centrist government? I think that it might be a little bit performative or a little bit traditional um, rather than, and, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to suggest that any of the, the, um, the presidents who've spoken in, in their inaugurals about coming together in unity didn't mean that. Uh, but it is one of, the, one of the few times you hear it in uh, a president's rhetoric couple weeks later or, or, or a year after when they go address Congress in the State of the Union, they still want unity, but they are much clearer about unity achieved by everyone agreeing to what they want, which is when you're in power, you can make that demand. But I, I do think it is part of the inaugural speech, which is its own genre of speech. So it's the kind of speech that a person will make only 
once or maybe twice in their life, and only a very few people will make that speech. And uh, calls to unity are perhaps part of the formula. I don't think that makes it any less powerful or any less meaningful, though. I think it's still a very important thing to contemplate as you decide how you want to lead. Jay E. Moon, we're going to come on to you in a minute, but I started saying this before um, about 20 minutes ago and then lost, I was lost, lost in my thoughts. Really. I didn't really nail the landing. Me talking about the, the fact that in the United Kingdom, uh, the Prime Minister doesn't give a speech, though, as Clint said before we started the show, uh, we do have the, you know, there is the throne speech, there is the Queen's speech, so to speak, which is called the throne speech in, in Canada, which is all full of pomp and regalia. But that is um, when the president, when your president um, addresses uh, both houses of, um, of, of Congress, it, it's that, it, it's similar to that. Within British political life and history, prime ministers giving speeches uh, to the nation isn't really a thing. It isn't really a thing. And, and it's quite interesting to see the importance or the import that this is kind of given within the American kind of political system. We don't have this in, in the United Kingdom. J.E. Moon, you've already unmuted yourself. Your hand is up digitally. You're ready to go. Go for it. Ask your question. Yeah, I wanted to um, address what you said about the U.S. having to be reminded that it is the United States. And that's that's very true because we're a very big country and Americans tend to think of themselves as their states because the states have rights, too. It's not just that we're under a federal government following just the laws of the federal government. We're following the laws of whatever state we're in and we're voting on those laws, too. So you can have a state that is dry, meaning no alcohol allowed anywhere, or you can have one that's, you know, allows drugstores and other places to sell alcohol, and that's the state. And um, those those rules uh, vary from state to state. So it becomes a kind of like rooting for a football team situation. It's hard to remember that it's all one league of football teams. It becomes battles between states, and you can see how the the Civil War became that simply because certain states said, we want our way, we want our laws, and we're not going to give them up. You know, we're not going to listen to what the federal wants us to do. It it continues to this day that, that a president has to remind people that they're part of the United States. Unless it's a world war, we're not going to remember it. We're just going to say, I'm a Californian, or I'm an Arizonan, or I'm... In regards to the prime minister element, I, I'm, I'm sure all my fellow Americans here would love it if we could quickly get the president, if, especially this time around, if the president could have just left on the day after the election. But once again, it goes back to the fact that it's a very big country. And it used to be that you had the president who was from Illinois, the guy, you know, Abraham Lincoln gets elected. He has to take a train to Washington. He has to, and it's snowing and it's Christmas and you know, all those other things, and it, and you have to get them into the White House, and it's a big house that has to be cleared out. So it was a much more arduous thing to transition the president than to just, you know, someone who, from Parliament walking down the street and saying, I, okay, I'm the new prime minister. So, uh, J.E., that, that is completely and utterly a fair point. Though, Re- re- reading the history of the the transition, it has been cut down for kind of three. It was even longer before, wasn't it? Thank God. <laughs> yeah, yeah the, the, the 
the FDR speech that uh, we heard um, was in March, and then in the March. Kennedy speech was in January. And I, I, I think that we should cut it down even further. Yeah. The other thing to say as well is that, again, if you're a little bit of a, a student of, of these things, as I am, um, you realize the monarchical hangovers between uh, your republican system of government and um, and the way that things are done in in the United Kingdom. Uh, so even though the Prime Minister literally the next day walks into Downing Street and that's it. it it's utterly brutal if you've lost that election. You are gone in hours. Gone, right? No, you know, not days, hours. But when the monarch dies and a new monarch takes up, that can be a year before that new monarch is crowned. So you see the echoes of this, um, of you having your head of state, also the head of, also the head of the executive, in the fact that there is, there needs to be some kind of regal changing of regime. If Queen Elizabeth II died today, Charles would be king tomorrow, but he wouldn't be crowned possibly for six months, nine months, possibly even a year. There is that kind of little echo of very good uh, point. The, way, the way the British used to do things. Sorry, J.E.? I said that's a very good point, yes, because the president has to entertain foreign dignitaries yeah. and has to act that role too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, do we have um, another question? Kevin, you look so relaxed over there. In, in Sacramento. You've obviously had, had a hard day, Kevin, but you know what? You enjoy, you enjoy your, your rest, sir. Uh, Alexander, you want to come back? I think, Alexander, you're going to, unless somebody else wants to say another question after Alexander, I think that's the perfect hour uh, that, that we've had. Alexander, ask your question, sir. So my question is about how the audience for the inaugural addresses has changed over time. Um, from how you were describing Washington's, it sounds like he was really just talking to the other gentlemen in the room, right, in the Congress. Right? Also, like, right, by the way, don't pay me a salary, right? Um, and, you know, certainly now it's broadcast on television, online and everything. Um, was Jefferson speaking to a newspaper audience and Lincoln as well? Um, FDR, I assume, you know, for the radio. Um, and how, how do you think that affected um, what they included in the speech and, and, and how they spoke? Yeah, the, uh, the inaugural has always been intended to be uh, printed uh, for after the fact. Um, you know, as I, as I mentioned before, public, uh, you know, uh, public address systems, most people wouldn't have been able to hear the speech at all, even if they had been assembled at the Capitol um, to, to hear someone giving the speech uh, in the open air. Um, Washington's speech is addressed to uh, the House and the and the Senate, um, and I I don't know specifically. I think um, Jefferson, if I recall, was in fact addressing the House and the Senate, but he addressed it to to friends and fellow citizens. I'm not sure exactly when the uh, the transition from addressing Congress to addressing the people came about, but but again, it was always intended to be a speech that would be available to the people, usually in print. That, that's always been a part of how it's, it's crafted for posterity. Uh, fantastic. Clint, 
my my I keep on calling you my, my new best friend in Washington DC but um I've been saying this for about a month or so so he still can't be my new best friend my best friend in Washington there you go uh, thank you for uh joining us and uh illuminating us with uh an insight into inauguration speeches fundamentally Clint these shows are about me how did I do I think you did great you asked all the right questions you had all the right insights brilliant you know what ditto sir um hopefully um to the small but important viewing audience on zoom uh, alexander je moon kevin woodruff michelle natalia we had robin from melbourne and there was somebody else who had to go early as well hopefully you've had an, en an enjoyable hour and also an educational hour and uh, thank you for being uh, fans of 10 american presidents uh, michelle i can i can see you now you Look at you and all your books behind you. Is that a backdrop? Is that really your own personal library? It's a backdrop from Green Apple Books on Clement in San Francisco. Oh, One of the best used I'll, bookstores in the country. Well, <laughs> hopefully, hopefully, they'll be stocking my book um, uh, about uh, how to make a conquer the world uh, before the end of the year. Oh, that'd anyway, be great. Great, great bookshop. Great bookshop. Thank you again, everybody. Thank you for being part of this experiment. I think I just about held my own with Clint, so maybe we'll do this all again soon. Take care. Enjoy the podcast when it goes up. It fundamentally will be this, but without the little fluff which I did in the middle. If you haven't done so already, please write us a review on Apple iTunes or on a podcatcher of your choice. The more reviews... I get the more listeners I get to the show and also if you really do like uh, the output and if you do have any spare uh, pennies in your purse um, go on to Patreon and become a patron of 10 American Presidents. The American experiment is a fascinating one. I'm a student of history and hopefully through my learning about it, it gives you a little bit of entertainment. Thanks again everybody, take care, have a great evening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.